came about during the Reformation in this country, what we're in right now. Anyways, we go to our Lord's Word. It's interesting because Bible study today we went back on church history, and now we get to we're gonna hear hear about the own historical record, truthful record of how God founded and planted His church in its first workings, and it's still going on today. Amen. Two thousand years later. So let us read from. Mine just going right. Our Lord's, our Lord's history of his church, Acts 24, beginning in verse 22. And when Felix heard these things, having more perfect knowledge of that way, he deferred them and said, When Lysias, the chief captain, shall come down, I will know the uttermost of your matter. And he commanded a centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty, and that he should forbid none of his acquaintance to minister or come to, unto him. And after certain days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, which was a Jewess, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. And as he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, Felix trembled and answered, Go thy way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. He hoped also that money should have been given him of Paul, that he might lose him. Wherefore he sent for him the, the oftener and communed with him. But after two years, Porcius Festus came unto Felix's room, and Felix, willing to show the Jews a pleasure, left Paul bound. Let us pray. Father, again, we just offer you praise, glory, blessing, and honor this morning. For you, we know, are the one true living God. We thank you for your great grace and mercy you have abundantly shown and showered upon us through your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Pray now that, as you promise in your word, that all your people, while we hear it, Lord, would be built up by it, Lord, that it would have your intended work performed within us through hearing it, Lord. Lord, may you be glorified through its teaching, Lord, and through the proclamation of your truth. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. Well, good to good to be gathered together on the Lord's Day this morning, for sure, and uh, so grateful, amen, that he would have a day that he himself has ordained for men, uh, for his people to come and gather together as we hear the word preached this morning, and as we, of course, gather together around the Lord's table, amen, another one of those ordinances of the church that is going to continue on and on and on until uh, the Lord returns, which is such a blessing, and it's interesting, uh, I was talking with uh, Brother Kelly yesterday about some of our own country's history. It's a stunning thing when you consider this for just a moment. I don't know that many people know that uh, Ben Franklin, Benjamin Franklin, befriended George Whitfield, who was indeed one of the greatest open-air preachers that God has ever raised uh, to preach in the open air like he did. It was a stunning thing. Now, not only were they friends, not only did he befriend them, but uh, uh, Franklin printed, you know, pr Franklin printed many of Whitfield's sermons. 
It's a, it's a stunning thing when you consider that, right? I mean, we look at our own Constitution, our own First Amendment, right, the freedom of press. The reason that's in there is because Ben Franklin was a printer and wanted freedom of the press, amen, historically. And so think about this for a moment. George Whitfield, one of the greatest preachers, here's old Benjamin Franklin just printing his sermons, amen, and he's, he's, he printed many of them. It's a stunning thing when you consider that. However... Many of us are also very familiar and know that Benjamin Franklin famously said this, do not put off until tomorrow what you can do today. Amen. Again, not many people know he befriended that them two were friends, but we recognize Franklin for that statement. It's a stunning thing. But the tragic irony of Franklin's quote is that while he was close with Whitfield and Whitfield prayed, if you look histor historically, Whitfield prayed for him fervently, fervently for Franklin's conversion. Quite a stunning thing, amen, when you figure that out. Franklin uh, indeed put off, though, trusting Christ as his Lord and Savior. He was a great countryman, again, as we have seen, a great countryman, no question about that. But he was a pronounced procrastinator concerning the gospel that he had heard and printed on so many and numerous occasions. It's a stunning thing, again, to be that close, to hear the word of God, to print the word of God, to print the sermons that God used in gloriously a man in the Great Awakening to awaken this country. And here you have a man who was right there, right close, right next to him. And yet, there he sat, resisting and putting off the Lord Jesus Christ. Franklin died in 1790 as a deist. Quite a stunning thing when you consider that. Well, this morning, you ask, well, how is that relevant to our text this morning? Well, Felix, the governor, and Franklin, they're twin brothers in that he has the same procrastinating problem that Benjamin Franklin had. Now, I want you to see this as we lay this out again this morning. Procrastination, brethren, is a sin. I don't know if you know that or not, but it is something that is looked down on and frowned certainly in Holy Scripture. And I want you to see in our text this morning, Felix, who is, I'm going to call him, the great procrastinator, it's a stunning thing, brethren, as you consider him, like Ben Franklin, having the Apostle Paul standing right before him, preaching the word of God to him. And brethren, listen, it's interesting, isn't it? Because the ministers of today often tell us, well, I'm going to quote actually Spurgeon on it, but we're told as ministers that we should not double in people's personal lives, that we shouldn't, we shouldn't have as pastors, as we shouldn't look and go, that's sinful. You shouldn't be living that way. You shouldn't be doing those sorts of things. And yet this is precisely what Paul does. Amazing. He, he gets a hold of this procrastinator. Look there, if you would, just uh, at a couple of portions of our scripture this morning to get us started. Look at chapter 24. Look, or look at verse number 22. The Bible says, and when Felix heard these things, having a more perfect knowledge of the way, he deferred them and said, I'm going to wait till Lysias comes. And so again, we see this man who, as we're going to look at, he knew full well exactly what Paul was being charged with. But again, he defers them, and it's an stunning thing. In fact, that word literally means to put him off. So here's Felix standing there, sitting there, and he just says, I'm going to, I'm going to defer this thing. I'm going to put this thing off. Look at verse number 25 of our text. Look there again. 
And as he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, Felix trembled, and we're going to look at that, and answered, Go thy way for this time, and I will what? When I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. So again, we see this man who's about to hear the gospel preached, about to hear his personal life being exposed by the word of God. He just simply says, hey, go, go away till I have a convenient season. That is putting him off. In fact, our text tells us how long Felix put Paul off, put the preaching of the gospel off. Look there, if you would, at verse number 27. Look what it says there. But after two years... So again, this whole time Paul preaches and for two years he puts it off and he puts it off and puts it off. It's an amazing thing. In fact, nowhere in history is it ever recorded that Felix ever trusted in Christ. And so again, he is indeed a great procrastinator and we're going to see that in all of his decisions. It's a stunning thing, brother, and we consider some of the truths here in our text. So our text deals with, brethren, the legal aspect of Paul's trial, and then it gets deep. It literally is an amazing thing. It like it turns on Festus or on Felix, and it goes deep down into the heart and personal life of the governor. Now, brethren, that is absolutely the working of the word of God. That's what the word of God does, right? It's one of those things. The Bible says it's what? Sharper than a double-edged sword. It goes down into the place where only you and God can see. And this is what we're going to see here. Felix's heart is going to be exposed for what his heart really is. One that is in rebellion against God. One that is hard as stone. One that has a mind that's an enmity against God. And yet there's Paul standing there preaching. He's getting very personal. That word of God, that's just a searing thing that goes down into the heart of all of us. And that's a good thing, brethren. That is absolutely a blessing when God's word pierces your heart. It's an amazing thing when you consider that. Felix has to make a legal decision concerning Paul here this morning, but far beyond that, there's much greater. There's a much need, more needful thing that is going to be addressed in the life of Felix in our text this morning. Look there at verse 22 and 23. And when Felix heard these things, having made more, having more perfect knowledge of that way, he deferred them and said, When Lysias, the chief captain, shall come down, I will know the uttermost of your matter. And listen, brethren, again, what have we been seeing as we've been going verse by verse? You remember early on in the book of Acts, there was miracle after miracle after miracle. God was raising the dead. He was healing the sick. Shadows were healing. It's an amazing thing. And for the last several chapters now, that has really kind of come to a ceasing end. But what have we been seeing? The providence of God, the providence of God caring for Paul as he is going from trial to trial, uh, being saved by the men that God has put in place to save him as he makes his way to Rome. Because Jesus promised him, you'll go to Rome and preach, and that's exactly what's going to happen. But we see here again in verse number 23, God's providential care for his preacher. Look what he does. And he commanded a centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty and that he should forbid none of his acquaintance to minister or come on to him. Again, God's providence in Paul's life is he is there in prison, he is in custody and has been in custody, and yet through his providence he is allowing Paul to preach. He's allowing Paul to have his acquaintance, his acquaintance come to him on a free, regular basis. Now, brethren, that wasn't normal in the Roman world. If you were a prisoner and you were under uh, siege, if you will, if you were under their custody, this was an abnormal thing. 
So we see Paul here again being protected by God and his providence as he is preparing him to go to Rome and to preach the gospel there. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? It is a stunning thing. In fact, Luke, as he says here in our text, that, that uh, Felix had a more perfect knowledge of the way. So again, as you're reading scripture, as you're reading the verse, you ask yourself, well, how did he have a more perfect knowledge of the way? Well, he had become quite acquainted with this Christian life, with the Christian, with the way, as he calls it here in our text. Luke doesn't tell us how Felix became acquainted with the way, but we know that Philip, the evangelist, lived in Caesarea, where it's right where these people are at. This is right where it's taking place. We know that Philip was there, that he, in fact, that there was a church there. If we remember now, again, I'm getting older. My hair is turning grayer. I just, I just told uh, Kelly and Mickey yesterday, I'm, I'm 59. I'm 59. I'm almost 60 years old. It's just a stunning thing to believe. I'm going into that old category. I mean, you just you get up there and things kind of creep along into that old category, but by way of remember, remember now again, the way this Christian movement that was taking place, God as he's spreading the gospel all across Asia, all across Asia Minor in these places, it is just roaming along. And so here again, so here's Felix. He understands a little bit of the way. He has a more perfect knowledge, the Bible says, of the way. And how is that done? Look with me, if you would, just by way of remember. Look at Acts chapter 21. Again, the, the church that's there, Acts chapter 21. Look there at verses 8. And nine, and we see that here again. We like to hear the word of God tell us why things are the way they are. Look at verse number eight. The Bible says, And the next day we that were with Paul's company departed and came to Caesarea. And we entered into the house of Philip the Evangelist, which was one of the seven, and abode with him. And so here we have Philip the Evangelist. Remember back in Acts chapter 8, he was preaching to the Ethiopian eunuch the word of God. He explained the word of God to him. And right at the end of Acts chapter 8, the Bible says that Philip was taken away, and they found him where? In Caesarea. This is where he's at. This is where the church was established. This is how Felix, who is there, knows who and what this way is all about. Now, Felix, in our text, he puts off his decision. Again, this guy, if you, when you leave today, you're going to know the word procrastination. Because not only that, he puts off this decision, this legal decision that he has to make concerning Paul, it's an amazing thing, under the pretense of waiting for more evidence from Lysias. But we remember, brother, and again, this is the thing, the mind, you must remember this, that what did Lysias, or what did Felix already have in his hand when Paul was delivered to him? What came with Paul? Do you remember? It was what? The letter, the epistle that was sent with him. He already had, Felix already had all of the information, all of what Paul's situation was. Everything that he needed, and yet providentially, and again, brethren, this is what one can never lose track of. By the providence of God, he again procrastinates and puts off this decision concerning even Paul's legal status. Which leads us to, really, brethren, the point that the scripture is pointing us to, and again, it's that area of the heart. It's the area of the mind. It's the area of the place that only the Spirit of God knows and only the Word of God knows. And that's down into Felix's personal life. It is quite a stunning thing, and we're going to see this here together. Look there again, if you, if you notice there. Look at Acts 23 again. Just want Scripture to tell us, to remind us. Look at verse 33. Look what it says. 
who, when they came to Caesarea and delivered the epistle to the governor, presented Paul also before him. And when the governor had read the letter, he asked what providence he was from. And so again, here we have a detailed list. Here's the procrastinator by the providence of God, putting it off, putting it off, not making a decision concerning Paul's legal matter, which then opens up the door by God's decree, opens up the door for Paul to stand there and to address, really, Felix's and Drusilla's main issue which is really where our text takes us. It's an amazing thing. Look there, if you would, at verse number 24 of chapter 24. Here we go. This is where we really start getting down into the work of God, the sovereign monergistic. I like to say that. We talked about that this morning, the monergistic work of God. You realize, brethren, that if, the, if God is not drawing and the spirit of God is not regenerating, that person who's hearing the gospel will never look and see the Lord Jesus Christ for who he is. They will not do it. It's a stunning thing. And this is what we see unfolding here. Again, Paul, one of the greatest preachers in history, wrote two-thirds of the New Testament preaching to a man and to a woman, and he addresses their issues, and we'll see that he walks off unfazed, unstunned by what Paul is doing and what he's hearing Look there, if you would, look at verse number 24. Again, we see this. The Bible says, and after certain days, there it is again, right? Felix is just taking his time. After certain days, the Bible says, we see there, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, which was a Jewess. Now, brethren, this is quite a detail that Luke, as he's led by the Spirit of God, pens for us this morning. So after, as I said, procrastinating for several days, Felix shows up with his ill-gotten wife. Now, brethren, again, this is something we, I think we've touched on a little bit before, but it's a stunning thing. Felix shows up in public with his ill-gotten wife. And you guys remember how he got her. We talked a little bit about it already. He sent an acquaintance who pretended to be a magician. Stunning thing. This is a young lady. She's 20 years old at this time. It's a stunning thing. He pretended to be a, a magician and induced her to leave her husband. And we remember that she was Felix's third wife. Not his first wife, not his second one, but indeed his third wife. So again, we see the ill-gotten wife. They're living in sin. They're living in, in, in immorality. And Paul, of course, is very much aware of this. Now, Drusilla... <laughs> She has quite a history and quite a lineage. Drusilla was the daughter of Herod Agrippa, who murdered James in Acts chapter 12. I want you to see again the depravity, the utter, if you will, just degradation of the lives that Paul is addressing. Drusilla was the daughter of Herod Agrippa, who murdered James in Acts chapter 12, and was then uh, eaten, this Agrippa was eaten by worms in the amphitheater right here in Caesarea, <laughs> right here. He kills James, and you remember that. We went over that, and literally, literally, he declared himself what? He stood up and said, I'm God, and he was eaten right there of worms. This is who she's related to. It's an amazing thing. She is indeed the great-granddaughter of Herod the Great, who ordered the slaughter of the infants when Jesus was born. Do you remember that? She's tied, connected. Her whole family roots are connected to the Herods. She is also the great niece of Herod Antipas who beheaded John the Baptist. And we're going to look at that because 
what Paul is doing is exactly what John the Baptist did to her great uncle. It's a stunning thing when you consider that. She's also the sister of King Agrippa II, brethren, whom Paul will indeed be preaching in front of in the next chapter. You remember when Jesus promised him, you're going to be before kings, and we've talked about this, you're going to be doing all these things. This is exactly what the providential hand of God is doing. He's taking Paul before kings, before governors, and the uncle's next. King Agrippa II is next. Paul will be standing there again, giving testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is quite, again, as I've used that word, quite, again, stunning when you think about it. This is the couple, listen, brother, whom God, by his sovereign decree, opens the door for Paul to stand there and to have his feet shod and prepared and ready for the preaching of the gospel. Because I want you to see, it's really quite amazing when you consider this, what they asked for. <laughs> I always tell my kids, you better be careful what you ask for. We better be careful what we ask for. You know who asked for Paul to come? Paul didn't bust his way into the palace and bust his way into the, to see Felix. Felix, by the providential hand of God, asked Paul to come and preach. Hey, Paul, come over here. Look at you, if you would, there at verses 23 or 24 and 25. Look at what he asked for. And in certain days, when Felix came with his wife Priscilla, which is Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Verse 25, and as he reasoned of righteousness and temperance and judgment, again, brethren, that gets personal. That's why the Spirit of God led Paul to preach the things that he did to come. Felix trembled and answered, go, go away. Get away from me. By the, I, I mean, I'll call for you here in just a little while. The Bible says here that Paul reasoned with Felix and Drusilla. That, I, that word reason literally means to mingle thought with thought. Paul here is addressing their issues and thinking like they are, and they're mingling, he's mingling the word of God thought for thought concerning their lifestyle or what they are doing. It means to discuss, to preach. Their marriage and their lifestyles, brethren, were grounded and built on adultery, on betrayal, on sorcery. I mean, think of this for a moment what their marriage was built upon, these unholy, ungodly things, all of which are antithetical to the faith of Christ, all of them. This is what he's doing. Again, he's addressing their personal life. You're living in adultery. You're living in such a way that is unholy and ungodly. And so Paul, again, starts right from the ground, right from the foundation of it all. Look what he says. He's, the Bible says he reasoned with them. Well, what was he reasoning with them, thought for thought? What was he uh, uh, preparing and, and presenting to them there? I'm glad you asked. He, Paul says, the Bible says that he reasoned of righteousness. Now, I think we as Bible believers understand what righteousness is, but let me give you a definition. This is a biblical definition of righteousness. This is why he starts where he does. Because, brethren, if you don't understand that God is righteous, that God is holy, that he's not the man upstairs just with a cane rocking in a chair, that God is indeed righteous and holy and pure, you will never understand the depth of your salvation. You will not. So Paul begins here reasoning with them concerning righteousness. And righteousness biblically means this, the state of being right, the state of moral and spiritual purity. 
It is indeed what God is and what we are not. Do you understand that? This thing is, this is an all-enveloping kind of thing. We are not, and man isn't, until what? Until the gospel is imputed to us. So you see here, he's hearing the faith in Christ. Paul just starts right out. Here's the foundation. Righteousness is the foundation. It is indeed who God is, and it is indeed who we are not. And we are not until God imputes his righteousness to us. It is a work of God. We understand this, right? It is something that God does. When you talk about you know, the doctrine of imputation nowadays, people have no idea what you're talking about. What, what is that? What does that mean? It is the work of God imputing to you the righteousness of Christ to your account. An account that Felix and Drusilla could never pay. It's an account, brethren, that you and I can never pay. Never. You understand that. I want you to see here just a couple that God is righteous. He brings it right down to the ground, to the foundation. Look at Psalms 119. Let's just look at a couple of them here together this morning. Look at Psalms 119. Now, the Bible, as we know, is replete with speaking and saying that God is righteous. Look at Psalms 119. Again, what's Psalm 119 all about? If it was Wednesday night, I'd ask, and you guys would raise your hand, and you'd, you'd say, oh, it's all about what, Howard? You can say it. The Word of God. Anybody remember how many past, the longest chapter in the Bible, how many verses don't mention the word of God in Psalm 119? Anybody remember? Three. And there is a slight reference to it. So it's all about the word of God. And here in Psalm 119, the psalmist says this. Look at verse 137. Let's look at that together. I want us to hear this together. Righteous art thou, O Lord. God is righteous. All of his judgments are righteous. He is pure, holy, and clean. We are not. This is why he started there. You understand, Felix. You understand, Drusilla, that God is righteous and we are not. Look what it says. Righteous art thou, O Lord, and upright are thy judgments. Thy testimonies that thou hast commanded are righteous and very faithful. So again, we see here, just from the psalmist, that he is that he's proclaiming to all of us as the Bible does over and over again that God is righteous. You know who else claimed that God the Father was righteous? That's right, the Son of God. I want you to turn to John chapter 17. One of the, obviously, his high priestly prayer. Look there, if you would, just a couple of them. The psalmist declares him righteous. Paul declares him righteous. And the Lord Jesus Christ himself declares the Father righteous. Because why, brethren? Why would he say that? Because he is righteous look at john chapter 17 out of the words and out of the mouth of the lord jesus christ himself in his high priestly prayer praying for his sheep praying for those who are his not to take them out of the world but to protect them to do those things that we have looked at in the past look there chapter or chapter 17 look at verse number 24 look what the bother the, the bible says father I will that they also whom thou hast given me to be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. What's the next three words of verse 25? O righteous Father. God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God in the flesh, declared that the Father is righteous. And brethren, when you understand that God is righteous, can I say it again? That God is righteous, that he is holy, that he's clean, that he's pure. He doesn't even look on sin. 
And yet, what do we do? A lot of you just flump around, act like sin's not a big deal. God is righteous. This is what Paul is saying to him as he begins his sermon, as he begins, lays that foundation. Look what Jesus says there as we finish that. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me. And I have declared unto them thy name, and I will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. The Father is righteous. The Bible says that he is righteous. The only way for one to be righteous is for God to, the righteous one himself, to impute unto you Christ's righteousness. It's the only way. There is no other way. In fact, look here. Look how the gospel that Paul is preaching, the faith of Christ, is tied to righteousness. Look at Romans chapter 1, and we'll, we'll close or finish up this portion with this verse. This is a verse we can all quote. This is one that we know by heart, for sure. In fact, if you look at the book of Romans, Paul uses the word righteousness over 30 times. Righteousness, 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 righteousness. You must be righteous. You must be justified by God himself. You must be. There is no other name given under heaven, right? Luke wrote in Acts chapter 4, which men must be saved. You must be imputed with the righteousness of the gospel. Look there at verse number 15. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. And, of course, right in the middle of our text where we're at today is right before Paul. He's in prison for two years, and he shuffled off right here to Rome to preach the gospel to them. What a glorious thing, the providential land of God at work. But look what it says there. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto what? Unto salvation. First for the Jew and then for the Gentile. And then he quotes who? Habakkuk. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed. That's the righteousness. This is what Paul's talking about. The only way Felix and Drusilla to be righteous is to be righteous in Christ. Period. That's it. No saying Hail Marys. No climbing the steps over at the Vatican. No whipping yourself with all kinds of things. No saying enough penance. It cannot be. You realize, brethren, <laughs> that the Reformation movement, and even before, the Baptistic movement in the past, do you know what the dividing of it all was? How one is justified. It's how one is justified. Look what they did. No, it isn't me plus God. It isn't me plus the saints of the, you know, the prayers of the saints. It isn't me plus anything. It's how am I justified? By the righteousness being imputed to you by God himself through the death, the burial, and the resurrection of his son. That's the righteousness, brethren, that Paul is laying the foundation here for Felix and Drusilla to see their sinful and unholy condition. But again, as we have said, the Spirit of God must be moving. The Father must be drawing. Amen? The Spirit must be regenerating. Or one will never look. We sang that Psalm 121 this morning. I look up my eyes to what? To the hill. And from whence come my... It's God, the Lord. One will not do that. 
when your eyes are blind, when your heart is hard as stone and your ears are stopped, it isn't until the miraculous work of God that the ears are unstopped, the eyes are opened, and the heart is put as he dealt with Nicodemus. You must be born again. Quoting Ezekiel 36, that's what the Jews, that's what they understood. That's exactly what John 3 is. It's not an American verse. <laughs> it's dealing with Ezekiel 36, dealing with the Jews and how God will wash them and give them a new heart. This is precisely what Paul is saying. The only way to be righteous is to have the righteousness of Christ imputed to you. Paul is reasoning with them. He's mingling thought with thought. Amen? And it's a stunning thing concerning their spiritual state before God. So what Paul addresses first is their spiritual state. This is always important, isn't it, brethren? The spiritual state of one. I remember a friend of mine told me one time, well, you should just assume everybody's saved and tell you no different. No. That's, that's, that's what do we call that, brethren? That's inverted? That's backwards? That's upside down? Nowhere in the Bible do we see that. One assumes that everyone is lost until you know they're saved. That's the order. That's order salutis. That's how God does it. He saves and these things then are revealed. It's a crazy, stunning thing, that world that we live in. It really is. It just absolutely is. And people put their Bibles away. Their own thoughts come about. Their own understanding comes about. And pretty soon you can hear what I heard yesterday. I'm not going to repeat it because I couldn't even hardly stand it. Wendy thought I was going to corkscrew in the ceiling. You can't believe how many people I got saved. This woman told me this yesterday. I'm saving people right and left. In fact, on the Internet, over in Africa, I saved a person in Africa. You saved nobody. You are a dirt pile like me whom God uses to preach the gospel if you're faithful in preaching that. You save no one. But this is where it ends up. When it's man-centered, this is where it goes. Me, 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 I, I, I. Instead of saying, look what the Lord has done to me. Look what the Lord has done for me. He can do the same for you. He can save your, what's that song? John Bunyan? Your wretched soul. Wretched man. You know, they've changed that too now. They won't even say that word. They've changed that hymn some, some have. Instead of wretched, I can't, they replace it with some goofy thing. Some person like me. If you understand a holy, righteous God, you'll understand that you are a wretch. I know that sounds very negative, but it's a reality. And it's a biblical reality because Paul himself said what? Brethren, we can quote it together. Who will save me? This wretched man that I am, from this that I am. Only Christ, only his righteousness. And again, right there he's talking about being justified in Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 8. It's a stunning thing that we consider this morning. Paul first addresses their spiritual state before God. And he's, he is actually, it's really quite amazing because he's concerned about their spiritual state before God, not before men. We should be concerned, well, I shouldn't say that. He's concerned about their spiritual state of being. He's telling them and preaching to them concerning that. Now, look what he does. Not only does he talk about righteousness, but look at the second thing he addresses. And again, first the spiritual, 
Then he addresses the lifestyle. Look there, if you would, back at Acts chapter 24. Look at verse number 25. Acts 24. Look at verse number 25. So he addresses their spiritual condition. Then he says this to them. Look at verse 25. And he reasoned thought for thought of righteousness. What's that next word? Temperance. Righteousness first, then temperance. Well, what does that word temperance mean? It refers to self-control. It literally, brethren, refers to self-control. He's talking about their conduct. He's talking about how they are living. Your spiritual condition, and then we're going to talk about your life, your your, uh, if you will, physical condition before God, your physical state before God. Your, Paul is preaching here, brethren, to a man who had no dignity. If you understand who Felix really is, and I don't have time this morning to tell you what a wretch he really was. I was a wretch, but I'm telling you, he's got wretches above me that are beyond measure. Stunning, the kind of man he was. He had no decency. None whatsoever. This is who Paul is talking to. No dignity, no morality, no decency. Just like most people, lost people have. No morality. They think they're decent, but they're not. And he's preaching to a woman. Think of this. He's preaching to a man with those characteristics. He's preaching to a woman also, brethren, who had given away her decency, her modesty. Young ladies, listen. Don't do that. Don't give away your decency. Don't give away your modesty. Don't do it. Her purity, don't do it. Paul then just dives headlong in to these personal lives. These two who have indeed blown all that and given all that away. It's an amazing thing. In fact, as I said, her great uncle had a great man of God say the exact same thing to him. You remember that? Let's look at that. Look at Matthew chapter 14. Her great uncle had, again, one of the greatest, the last Old Testament prophet standing before him preaching the same thing. Look at Matthew chapter 14. Let's just read that together. Look there if you would. Matthew chapter 14. Look at verse number 3. The Bible says, For Herod had laid hold on John and bound him and put him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife. So we understand they were living in what? In adultery. They were living in an unholy situation. For John said unto him, It is not lawful for thee to have her. (laughs) Well, here's John preaching the law of God to those who don't like the law of God and certainly are not going to hear the law of God. Don't you tell me that I'm immoral. Don't you tell me that I'm unholy. This is exactly what John the Baptist did. And we know what happened. This is different. Paul's situation is different because we know he goes to Rome. John doesn't make it out of prison that day. He is beheaded because he preached the truth to the king. Here's Paul standing before Felix, preaching the truth, telling him and his wife, you guys are living in an unholy manner. Most churches, most churches don't even draw a hint of something like that. You know adultery is still adultery. Fornication is still fornication. Even though Americans seem to think it's not, it is still 
by the command of God, a sin against a holy, righteous, pure God. So this is being addressed. Stunning, isn't it? People today are stunned when an elder or a pastor will hold them accountable for what they're doing. Most of the time, they trottle on out the door. That's what they do. I don't need this. Yeah, you do. You need the word of God to put you in the right place. You need the word of God to correct you, just like I do. When I'm looking at an issue, and I'm wrong on it, and I read in the scripture, and it says, no, this is the way it is, then you better move over and get in line with scripture. Because, brethren, all this stuff is still sin in the eyes of a holy, righteous God. It will never change. He never changes. This is what we see. In fact, I like what Charles Spurgeon said. But some men will say, Sir, ministers ought not be uh, to be too personal. Ministers ought to be personal, he said. And they will never be true to their master until they are. You know why? Because I need it too. This preaching is for me. And it's for you. And it's for all who will hear the word of God. It's for all of us. It's something that was needful for us to consider and think about. Think about this for a moment. I said this Wednesday night. I have had some men that I have been very close to. Very close. Very friendly with. Very close. Preached in their churches. Went to conferences with them. Having no idea what was coming. The fall that was coming, brethren. I think Brother Kelly told me last night that, yeah, he's not recommending anybody who's still alive. He's going to wait till they're dead to see what happens. <laughs> and I think that's a good thing. Because men fall, women fall, things happen. We must keep ourselves focused on what the Lord is doing in his power, by his grace in our lives. The minister should indeed be personal. Now look at here as we finish this up. Look at Acts chapter 24. He preaches unrighteousness. He preaches concerning their lifestyle, their temperance, their self-control, and lack thereof. Really, we could say the antithesis of right, their unrighteousness. And then he tells them this, again, something that <clears throat> many pulpits are missing, the judgment of God. Look what he says, verse 25. And as he reasoned thought for thought of righteousness, thought for thought of temperance, and judgment to come. What did Felix do? <laughs> the Bible says that Felix trembled. Paul here again brings in and warns here of God's judgment coming upon them if they don't repent. Right? That's what he's doing. Lays the holiness ground, lays the unholy lifestyle ground, and then says, if one doesn't repent, the judgment of God is coming. Oh, we need some men to stand in their pulpits and read that great sermon. People in the hands of an angry God. Right? Yes. You realize when he preached that sermon the first time in his own church, nothing happened. He went to another church and read it. He couldn't hardly see. And he read it, and God brought fear in that congregation. 
and they move because of the judgment of God. Now, I know we live in a place we don't want to hear about God's judgment. Like I was telling Brother Kelly last night, we were talking. There's a balance. There's always a balance in Scripture, brethren. There is the judgment of God, the love of God. There's the long-suffering of God. There's a time when that comes to an end. There's always a balance, a biblical balance. And here he's warning them of the judgment that is to come. God has been so lowered down. He has been so brought down from his holy heights in the eyes of men that he again is just a doddering old man that really doesn't know what's going on. Brother, nothing could be further from the truth. He is sovereign. He changes not. And he's as powerful today as he is here. Judgment indeed will come if one does not repent. Paul has told them that God is righteous, that God will hold them accountable for their way, their living. Brethren, no easy believism here. No Rick Warren thought here. No scheme here to see how many people we can get in the building and then, you know, we'll trick them later. And that's what that is. It's a scam of the devil himself. A scam. No easy believism. Just right up front and personal. You're in your sin. The good balance would be, right? So was I. Until God worked a great miracle of salvation in my own heart, right? Yeah. This is what must be done. No, God loves you the way you are. No, God made me this way. You realize that's what they're doing now, brothers, and, and at least in, in our own nation. You know what they're saying? God made me this way. Mm -hmm. If you don't understand, it's funny. They quote, Bible, they quote the Bible when they think it works for them, right? I mean, I had one quote one last summer when we were preaching in down over here in the park down over here. She said, well, Genesis 2 says there's no, there wasn't any breath until till, till God breathed the breath. So they're just dead. We just kill them. I mean, it's amazing, isn't it, what they will do to try and reason through this stuff. Stunning thing. Stunning thing. But what does Paul say? What is he doing? Let's uh, quickly close with 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Turn there. Paul again knows these things. He's preaching of the holiness and righteousness of God. He's preaching concerning their unholy lifestyle. And he's preaching unto them judgment because he knows this is coming. Did you notice the terminology he used in the text? The judgment to what? To come. There's a future judgment coming. Brethren, look at here what he said as he was writing to the church at Corinth, who, by the way, as we remember, had a myriad of issues, a myriad of unholy things going on in the church. Paul addresses them, and he says this to them right here in verse number 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. There's a judgment coming. Now the judgment seat of Christ and the judgment seat for the Christian is not whether you're saved or not. Because if he has imputed his righteousness to you and saved you, you are safe, secure. He will bring it to an end. But if you are not, 
There is a judgment coming that is based on what you do, based on your works. So Paul is saying we're all going to appear before it, all of us. All you need to do is turn your Bibles to Revelation 19.20. You'll see the great white throne judgment where you do not want to be because you'll be standing there naked, all alone, with your own works to condemn you. Your unrighteousness will condemn you to hell. Paul knows this. So he says this as he continues here in Corinth. Look at what he says. That every, every one may receive the things done in his body according to that that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Again, he's talking to the Christians. Not whether we're going to be... We're not, we're not saved based on what we've done, good or bad. We're saved based on what we've done with our what? Our talents, what we've done here in the church, with, with the church, what we've done in our families, what we've done in our homes, what we've done out on the street preaching and working with the people we're working for. This is what he's talking about, the rewards. And then he says this. Look what he says. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we, what? we persuade men. But we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. This was the gist of Paul's preaching. There's this good balance. There is the faith of Christ. There is the trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That is righteousness imputed to you. Again, believing is a gift of God. You understand this. Faith is a gift of God. The Holy Spirit is a gift of God. Grace is a gift. They're all a gift of God. And when they're given to you and you believe, you are declared righteous and just before God. Now, brethren, we remember, I remember clearly, very, very vividly, very clearly, when God started drawing me, I had a fear of him, a terror. That's what Paul's talking about. There's a terror, understanding, and knowing that there's a judgment coming, one which you cannot bear. This is what Paul is warning them. Hey, Felix. Hey, Drusilla. There's a judgment coming. Repent. Turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. The words of Paul as I close this morning the ones that he used were full of meaning then. And you know what? They're full of meaning now. They never change. You know why? Because people never change. All we got to do is just look out. We see all kinds of Felixes. We see all kinds of Drusillas. All kinds of them. And then, brethren, worse than that. <laughs> I mean, as I said last Wednesday night, I mean, we have two communist leaders that won't touch the things we're doing, the immoral things we're doing. They don't even touch it. Stunning. So Putin is over with Gigi clanging their wine glasses together going, look at what they're doing. Destroying their own selves. Stunning. They won't even touch it. It's an amazing, stunning thing. But they had meaning today and they will tomorrow and the next day. Just as for Felix 2,000 years ago, they still contain the power of God. These words, the Bible, the inspired words of God, that which every man should preach, every woman should preach, every man, every woman should use. For that is indeed what? The power of God unto salvation. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we... Uh,
again come before you thanking you for certainly your grace this morning. Oh, your long suffering and the loss 